Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike from your host, and this podcast is with Neil Farrell. Neil chats about flying the Wessex, E3 Century, and the BBMF Dakota and Lancaster. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also, visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Thank you and enjoy. Uh, from a very young age, my I grew up around airplanes. Really, my father was an engineer in the RAF many years ago on Victors uh, and Nats and a few other things as well. And I became aware of airplanes when we were out in Germany. My father was an engineer for an airline, so I kind of always grew up around airplanes. When did you decide you wanted to join the Air Force? I, I, when I was going through high school, really, I decided that was probably the best route to get to varied and interesting aircraft. Um, and I thought that the Air Force was certainly the thing I wanted to do first. So what year did you join? <clears throat> I joined after doing my degree in 96. So when did your training begin? Initial officer training in 96, and then I was streamed helicopters. Um, and I went to Shawbury in 98 to 99. I uh, got my wings in April 99. So can you explain some of the aircraft you flew on? Uh, for the very beginning, I actually did my elementary flying training on the Bulldog which has been replaced these days by the Tutor. Um, after the Bulldog at Shawbury, it was the Squirrel, single-engine uh, helicopter, and then we progressed to the twin-engine Griffin, uh, the latter-day version of the old Huey. Um, and I got my wings on that and then went straight to Northern Ireland on the Wessex. So did you want to be streamed to Rotary? It wasn't my first choice, actually. No, I wanted to be a heavy aircraft man, but uh, as is the way of the Air Force, they send you where they need you a lot of the time. Uh, although it wasn't my first choice, when I got there, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So can you explain some of the rotary training, what you had to go through? Um, your first stages was really, you know, day one of, of helicopter flying is, is, is the hover and, and, you know, slow taxi and basic circuits, landing and taking off, that sort of thing. Once you'd learnt to fly the single-engine squirrel, uh, you then moved on to the advanced phase of single-engine, which was navigation, instrument flying, uh, confined area, takeoff and landings in, in between, you know, rows of trees and what have you. Once you've progressed, once you mastered that you then moved on to the griffin and it was more of the same really um, but there was a lot more emphasis on uh, working with a team so you had someone else in the other seat and you also had a crewman down the back and it was all getting you geared up for frontline operations so you're flying bigger more powerful heavier helicopters a lot more emphasis on navigation a bit of formation flying tactical formation flying uh, and there was also a search and rescue element in there as well in case you ended up flying the seeking neil chats about flying the wessex so after this, you were forced into Wessex. How did this come about? Um, I came top of my course at Shawbury, which I was delighted with, and I got the choice I wanted, which was the seeking on search and rescue. I actually wanted to do that. Um, but again, the Air Force being what it is, they send you where they need you, and they were short of guys on the Wessex in Northern Ireland. So unfortunately, um, I got re-rolled to, to, to 72 Squadron. How much training was involved to fly the Wessex? It was another six-month operational conversion unit, although it was operational conversion flight. It was a a flight within 72 Squadron. Um, As I remember, it it was about six months, maybe maybe four, four to six months, but it was all training done in theatre. You had a little bit of training on the UK mainland, which was, you know, learning how to start it up and do very basic flying with it. Then you very quickly progressed with frontline crews in Northern Ireland to do your training pretty much on the job. So how was it different from the training aircraft you flew? A lot older, 
Um, it could physically fly as fast as the Griffin, and it could lift more, but because you were always loading it up full of troops and what have you, uh, it was a lot more of a challenge to fly. Um, a lot of fun when it was empty and nice and light, very manoeuvrable helicopter, but as soon as you put any payload on, it, it could bite you. So could you explain some of the good points and bad points of the Wessex? Wessex, the good points, it's charm. I mean, it was, a, it was lovely to fly a 35, nearly 40-year-old helicopter, and it was, you know, it was a handful of time, but when it was nice and light, it was a pilot's helicopter. It really was a lot of fun. Bad points, it was underpowered. I mean, the engines were, were, were very powerful, but the transmission was the limiting factor in it. So um, although the engines had a lot more to give, you were, you were limited by the gearbox. Um, and that was it, really. I mean, it, it, it was fun to fly. It was a challenge when it was heavy, um, but I wouldn't change it for the world. How many people were crewed in it? Normally a three-man crew. A pilot, another pilot in the other seat, or navigator... Uh, they were basically doing the, the mission, um, they were running the mission basically, uh, keeping, doing the navigation and running the, the task sheet, um, telling you where to go next basically, what the, what the next event was. Crewman down the back was your eyes and ears around the helicopter in confined spaces and of course he looked after all the troops down the back. So could you tell us how long it took to plan a mission or a training sort <clears throat> Not long at all really because you got to know the province very well. You knew... Um, how to get from A to B without any real big assistance from a navigator or, or the other guy. You knew which way you were to point the heli helicopter. You knew most of the forts and, and, and the landing, helicopter landing sites. The only thing you really had to put much thought into was A, the weather, and how much B, how much fuel to put on for that first stint, uh, because you didn't want to end up getting into a field too heavy to pick up the troops. So you had to balance how much fuel you put on versus how much you were going to lift when you got to where you were going. I'd say about an hour's planning, because it was just a task sheet telling you what you had to do that day. So once you realised you'd had the good weather, you could just go off and, and crack on with it. So what was the main role of the Wessex? What was it actually designed for? Um, back in the day, I, these are, they had, the Navy had ship-borne variants of the same aircraft, so they were early days, they were used for um, ASW with the Navy, of course for their own search and rescue, uh, and we used them for the same as well, search and rescue and support helicopters. So what squadrons were you based with for the Wessex? Uh, in Northern Ireland, 72 squadron, and we were quite a good squadron, actually. We had uh, Wessex and Pumas, um, but we, I only flew the Wessex. And then after 72 squadron folded in 2002 in Northern Ireland, I was lucky enough to go to Cyprus and fly the Wessex for one more year in search and rescue duties. Can you tell us a bit about your Northern Ireland tour? Uh, great fun. Everyone always says you should enjoy your first tour, and I did. Uh, I, missed the I missed the helicopter. I missed the guys we flew with. The flying was varied, um, day and night operations, moving troops and the IUC as it was then to all corners of Northern Ireland, uh, all weathers, um, moving troops and underslung loads in and out of all the hot spots that you hear about and read about in the papers. It was good fun. How often did you fly? Pretty much every day. Pretty much every day. If you, were, if you had a down day, it was either due to weather, serviceability, or you were coming off nights and getting ready for a day shift, so you needed your rest. Um, good serviceability rate and we had quite a few of them to pick, pick and choose from so if one did fall over in terms of serviceability you could pick another one um, yeah I got a lot of hours in that first tour um, in a very short time it was good was there such a thing as an average mission over there? no I don't think there's such a thing as an average mission in the Air Force period um, <laughs> even though we strive for it um, it was busy um, and although you were doing the same sort of thing 
i.e. you're moving troops from A to B, that's where the, the, the mundaneness ended. It was always a different field, always a different fort, always different weather. And like I said, the, um, the challenge of this aircraft was if it was heavy, it, it could bite you. So if you were in bad weather and heavy, you had your work cut out. Have you got any memorable stories in Northern Ireland? None that I can talk about in this interview. <laughs> so after 72 Squadron, what happened next? Wessex uh, in Northern Ireland, 72, we said goodbye to it. I remember dropping them off, uh, one of them off, in uh, RF Shawbury. And then I went back to um, Valley to do a very short training um, module on search and rescue before going out to Cyprus to fly the Wessex for one more year on 84 Squadron. What was that like? <clears throat> People always think, oh, Cyprus, sunshine, great, you know, what a great tour. And it was, it was, it really was. It was love, lovely weather and I loved the aircraft. I really didn't want to say goodbye to it. And I knew that the day was coming when I was going to say goodbye to it. But compared with the um, day-in, day-out, high-tempo, um, difficult flying of Northern Ireland, Cyprus was very much a, um, a more relaxed um, tour. You weren't moving troops day and night. You weren't battling with weather. It was very much um, nice blue skies, calm winds, and hovering over boats and cliffs, which, which was lovely. It was great fun, but it wasn't the sort of high-tempo that Northern Ireland was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, you know, we... The, good th- the thing I enjoyed most about both those tours was working on night vision goggles. That was good fun. So could you tell us what happened after you finished your helicopter tours? Well, I was uh, unsure what was going to happen to me, really. Uh, I, was, I was looking forward to going to the Sea King um, in, in, back in the UK, but uh, literally an off-the-cuff comment to my posting officer uh, about uh, becoming a fixed-wing instructor, he jumped on it and said, oh, is that what you want to do? So before I knew it, I was posted back to the UK on the tutor course to become a qualified flying instructor. Did you enjoy this? Loved it. Five, it was, again, it was different. And I, what, I, what I've been lucky to do in my career is fly different airplanes every few years. I wouldn't change that at all. So um, I did enjoy it. Um, I, I realised I enjoyed instructing. Uh, and I had five great years on the tutor. Can you walk us through a typical day on the tutor? In good weather, um, it was about three sorties a day. And you had overlapping courses. So... It was pretty much a straightforward, in in the morning, met brief, grab your first student, do a board brief on what you were going to teach him that day, him or her that day, um, fly it, quick debrief, write up and repeat the whole process again for a different student. And because you had overlapping courses, it could be a very early sortie, um, effects of controls, something very basic, right up to formation and low-level navigation for the next two. So again, it was a very varied day. What was it like to fly? People describe it as trying to land a crisp packet in high winds. Very light, compared with this, completely different. You know, uh, notwithstanding it's an airplane and, and that's a helicopter, it was, um, this was quite solid, robust. Tutor was quite light. Um, but once you got the hang of it and the picture out the front of what uh, trying to land it looks like, it was straightforward. It was a good training vehicle. So was it hard to retrain on a fixed-wing aircraft? No, because if you think about it, we'd, we'd all flown single-engine pistons aircraft right at the start of our careers. So I'd learned on the Bulldog, and the tutor replaced it. So you, you've kind of got that skill anyway. Um, and once you'd done front-line operations, going back to a, a very simple elementary training vehicle was quite straightforward. He and Neil chats about flying the E3 Century Airwacks. So after the tutor, you re-rolled in something. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be re-rolled into the heavy aircraft world, which is where I was always trying to get to, really, onto the Boeing E3D Century. Was this out of choice, or was it an option oh, for you? Out of choice. That was the jet I wanted to go to. 
So when did your training start on the E3? After a short stint at Cranwell on the uh, King Air, to get me used to the multi-engine way of doing things, I started at the back end of 2008 on the Central. So could you tell us about the training on the E3? What happened? What was it like? Yeah, again, it was another six months uh, of training. Uh, a good three or four weeks in the classroom. Uh, it's quite a complicated aeroplane. It's still one of the last airplanes in the RAF that's got a flight engineer. So there's very little automation. So you're learning about all the systems and how to interact with the flight engineer uh, in the classroom first. And then there's um, about 20, 21 simulator sessions to go into to get you used to it. Uh, and then you get uh, live on the real airplane. Uh, we did about five what we call P sorties, pilot training sorties, getting you used to how to fly the airplane, take off landing, the important bits, um, instrument rating, and then you'd move on to the mission profile where you start flying with the mission crew. They're on the same course with you and you all graduate together. So it's about a six month process. Was it difficult coming from Rotary and then obviously a light aircraft? If very, very hard. Very difficult. Century's quite a handful. Uh, old technology, um, it's, there's no, it's fly-by-wire in the old tradition, it's an actual cable that you're moving, um, rather than the more sophisticated electronic large aircraft that we have today. Um, you're also moving tabs on the wing rather than um, straight to a, a, hyd you know, a hydraulic motor, so you're moving a tab which moves the aileron eventually. It's quite heavy to fly. Um, it's not very intuitive. There's no sort of seat-of-the-pads feel either. Um, and when it's heavy, it's, again, it's like at the Wessex, when it's heavy, it's a real handful. Could you tell us, if you can, about the sim? What was it like? The sim? Yeah. Sim's quite good, actually. Um, it's not 100% like the aeroplane. It's good enough, though. It's a very good procedural trainer because all the, li the uh, lights and whistles work with regards to, you know, your, your, the flying part and also the flight engineer's panel. Uh, and he is quite an involved man on that flight deck. He's your technical brains and your performance expert as well. So it's a very good training uh, platform for him and uh, for you to learn his problems and how to work with him. So I would say by the time we'd finished the simulators, we were ready to get in the airplane. And those simulators we still use today pretty much every other week just to keep our hand in. So could you tell us about your first flight in it? Yeah, uh, I remember it very well actually. Um, first time I landed an aircraft that big on the runway, I was amazed I could do it. Uh, it was with a lot of relief as well but there was no time to relax because it just got harder and harder. You know, the first sorties you do are generally in good weather, and after that, um, they don't wrap you in cotton wool so much, so it becomes more of a challenge. But yeah, I remember it very well, it was good. So how many crew were in the E3? On a pilot training trip, um, bare minimum, just a flight deck crew and a few guys down the back just to make sure uh, nothing happens down the back untoward. On a mission, anywhere between 14 to 18 routinely. All depends on the mission profile. So was it an, is it an analogue air cockpit or is it all glass? It's a mixture. It's, uh, it started off as an analogue flight deck and over the years they've tried to upgrade it and put some glass uh, bits and pieces in here and there. But by and large it is, is 50s, 60s technology with a few modern add-ons. So when you went from training and you actually got in the cockpit, was it difficult or did it come naturally all the switches and uh, buttons and what have you? Because of all the... 20 or so simulator sessions we've done and each of those simulator sessions are four hours long wow uh, exactly so you <laughs> do get to learn the cockpit quite well so when you first got in it wasn't that you weren't a bit nervous scared other than hurting the airplane damaging it looking a full no <laughs> so could you tell us what squadron you were based with eight squadron 
I'm now an instructor on 54 Squadron. How many squadrons are there on the E3? There's just the two. Just there the was two. three at the time, but 23 disbanded a few years ago. And I'm not sure whether we're going to uh, bring them back to life again. So what is the main role of the E3? Airborne early warning and control of the skies. So you're kind of eye of the sky? Eyes and ears. So what type of aircraft is it? What's it based on? It's, it's an aircraft in its own right. They're not converted airliners, but it's loosely based around the old Boeing 707-300. What kind of engines do they have? CFM-56, and they're quite a tough, uh, tough, tough unit, actually. They're a good part of the airplane, shall we say. So when, like, how long was it after your training ended that it became operational? You cut of the conversion unit, what they call limited combat ready, and then they're looking for you to get combat ready within the next six to nine months. So a lot of self-study going on, learning about what happens down the back of the airplane, enhancing your knowledge of the aircraft itself, um, several simulator sessions, and then once you've had a bit of exposure to operations uh, or exercises, you're deemed combat ready. So how does it actually handle? Does it fly well? No. Uh, like I say, it's a right handful. There's a lot of satisfa satisfaction in flying the Century uh, because when you do pull off a good landing, or more importantly as an instructor, you teach someone else to be able to do that well, uh, it's an enormous sense of satisfaction. But it's, uh, it's not an easy airplane at all. So can you tell us your role as the pilot? Is that just your main focus or do you have other jobs? As the captain, you are kind of the linchpin to, make sure, um, to pull in all the information you, you can get from all your experts around you. Um, <laughs> You don't have the louder speaking part by any any means. Uh, you allow all the other experts in the airplane to do their bits and pieces, particularly the flight engineer. Uh, and once you've got all the information you need, you make the decisions. So could you talk us through the flight deck? How big is it and is it comfortable? Well, you would think being a Boeing, it's huge, but it's not. If you think about what it was derived from, um, it was supposed to be an airliner. So any cockpit room that's free is wasted. It's, it's, it's seats that could be taken up, space that could be taken up by seats for fair paying passengers. So actually, the 707, if you like, cockpit is quite cramped. Don't forget, there's four of us in it, plus a jump seat. So it's quite small. Is it a reliable aircraft? Um, yes and no. <laughs> it's getting on a bit now, bless it. It's actually a really good piece of equipment um, when it's all up and running. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of satisfaction to getting an airborne, doing a mission and landing. Um, it just requires a lot of TLC these days. So how often would you fly in a week? There's no typical week, really. Okay. as an instructor, because my flying comes in fits and starts. So at the moment, I'm training a new course. We're at the simulator phase. Uh, and the pilot training flights will come later on. And they can come thick and fast. So you could have two or three flights in one week. And then the mission phase will start maybe one to two flights in that week as well. All depends on, on weather and other priorities. Because the frontline aircraft need, the frontline squadron, squadron needs these aircraft as well. So there's a bit of a bump fight sometimes. Well, so where are they actually based? RF Waddington. And how many aircraft are there? We've got six. Okay, the average sort of mission, if there is such a thing, let's pretend we're, we're not a, you know, on a conflict anywhere, it's just a UK standard training sortie. You tend to get together the day before uh, with your flight engineer and get a, a weather report to work out how much fuel you can get on board. Uh, again, he's your performance expert, so you'd look to him for his advice uh, and what numbers he comes out with. The other guy that you liaise with really is what we call the tactical director. And he's the main guy down the back of the aircraft running all the mission crew. So you'd see what needs he has, why he wants to get airborne, where he wants to go, and how long he wants to, to be where, wherever you want to go in the UK. Once you've got all his inputs, and you've got the inputs from the flight engineers to what we can achieve, you come up with a plan. So you do that the day before, and on the morning of the day, 
normally about three hours before takeoff, you'd all come in, get a, a, an update for the weather, uh, see if anything's changed from the tactical director's point of view, his needs, um, whether you want to get airborne earlier or later. Earlier is a challenge, later is not a problem. Uh, other than that, people do their jobs. Co-pilot will, will make sure you've got the charts you need, navigator will file the flight plan, check all the NOTAMs and, and the usual stuff. Uh, the mission crew down the back, they make sure they've got all the facts they need um, for, their, for their job to do in the air. Uh, whoever they're going to be controlling, they'll liaise with them before they get airborne. And then you'll gradually all filter out to the jet and get airborne. Can the E3 mid-air refuel? It can. It's um, I think the only aircraft in the RF inventory that can refuel through both different means, probe and drogue and boom. So it's quite versatile. Do you ever go on training exercises abroad? Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, a lot of what we do are, are exercises abroad. Yeah. So what other nations do you work with? Pretty much all the NATO ones, all the NATO countries. I mean, we're largely a NATO asset. Uh, our, our call sign is a NATO call sign. So, uh, yeah, we work with all the usual, usual partners. So on an average mission or training sortie, what kind of aircraft would you interact with? Most in the UK, the boys down the back are controlling with the typhoons but we could easily um, move across the continent and train with other aircraft in Europe. So, I don't know if you'd like to tell us this, but how long can you stay airborne for? All depends on how much fuel you can get on board. <laughs> but, I mean, with air to refuelling, we can be airborne for... into the teens, let's put it that way. Have you ever been deployed operationally? Yes. Can you talk us through that? Or? Uh, I can let you know where we went. We were on, we've done operations over Afghanistan, and I've done operations over Libya as well. Did all your training prepare you for that? Yes, it did. Yeah. So, do you have any memorable stories in the E3 that you could share with us? Um, I suppose my most memorable one was the longest flight I did, which was just under 16 hours. Oh, God. Exactly. At the end of that, <laughs> you're a different person. Um, a lot more grumpy than I am now. Um, so, yeah, so I think that was my, my, my biggest memory. I think other, other little firsts that you do as well. I mean, the first time I went air to air refueling, you know, you, you remember those sorts because it's, it's quite hard to get two big old Boeings together in the same bit of sky touching. It's, it's quite something. So how long did you have to train for refueling or yes, was that? It's a separate skill altogether. So how long did that take you to, I don't know, you can say master, but... I did it um, a couple of years ago, got the qualification, but sadly, on, because I'm an instructor in the UK, I'm, I'm not as operational as I used to be, so there isn't the need for me to keep that skill set up like there is for the frontline crews. Um, classroom work, a good week in the classroom, a few simulator sessions to get used to the procedures, and then I would say typically three to four flights to get the qualification to do it. But it's one of those skills like landing the aeroplane, really, you need to keep on top of it. It is one that fades, and it's hard work. So after your operational, you went to be an instructor. Could you tell us about this? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I, because of my instructional background on the tutor, uh, it, was, it was quite um, obvious, really, that I was, I was inevitably going to be a, an instructor on the century. Um, I became an instructor on 8 Squadron, so I did a bit of instructing or, or you know, requalifying of the, of the frontline crews before then moving to the school where I taught guys um, for the first time that had never been on a century how to fly. Is it like a pass-fail thing, or do usually most pilots pass? By the time they've got to the OCU, um, guys are going to pass. That said, it's, it's difficult, and some guys have the odd uh, hiccup here and there, but... We're not as uh, cut and dry in, this, in the military. You, we've invested a lot of time in people, uh, and people have invested a lot of time in, in their, of their life in, in the military at that stage to then suddenly fail oh, because of one or two bad trips. So if someone does have a bad day and doesn't quite achieve the aim, 
there's a system in place to give them more training to achieve it and then we'll review it after that. So I wouldn't say we're touchy-feely uh, and wrapped it up in cotton wool, but we certainly give everyone the opportunity to, to flourish. So do you instruct on a daily basis? Yes, I would say I would, either in the classroom, in the simulator or in the aeroplane. Yeah, that's my main job is to instruct these Do you enjoy this? I love it, actually. Having spent five years on the tutor, I knew that I did enjoy instructing. Neil chats about flying the Decorcher and the Lancaster for the BBMF. So in 2014, something special happened. Can you tell us about this? It did, yes. I was lucky enough to be selected to fly uh, on the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. How did this come about? It was something I always had my eye on. But as you can imagine, flying these uh, lovely old aeroplanes, you need a certain background and experience level. So once I'd achieved that, um, the process is to write a letter to the boss. I said, I'd like to join your, your display team. And these are the reasons why. Um, after that, it's... it's similar to the Red Arrows in that they sift all those that apply. It tends to be a social, so everyone gets to be met in a social environment, and then the interviews start the next day. Then from those interviews, they'll, they'll pick the lucky candidate. And in 2014, it was me. So did you apply for to fly anything, or did you want a specific type? Because of my background, which is heavy aircraft, um, I can only, I'm only eligible to fly for the Lancaster and Dakota. So the Spitfire and Hurricane flyers tend to come from a fast jet background, which kind of makes sense. So, could you tell us, once you got accepted, when your training started, what was it like? Got accepted, I think it was the February, and then the training started pretty much the next month. It starts off with a lot of ground school uh, on the Dakota, first of all. You start off on the Dakota. Um, March through to April, you um, do all your, your flying training, and once you've gone solo, for want of a better word, once you've flown the aircraft as captain, You'll then start your <coughs> excuse me, display workup. And then come the end of April, you have what we call the PDA, um, public display approval, in front of a, um, a high-ranking officer. And that's you then eligible to display that airplane for that summer. So could you talk us through what it was like to fly the Dakota? Fantastic. I can remember, there's, there's very few flights that you remember, uh, and that's one of them. And I can remember once my instructor got out and uh, I was off to do my, my first flight as captain, turned to my entire crew and saying, whatever happens, do not let me cop this up. Um, and we did about half an hour flying uh, circuits and bumps at Collinsbury. Fabulous day. What was it like to fly? What's the characteristics like? It's a tail dragger, so again, it, it'll bite you. Uh, things to a tail draggers is you've got to land them straight. If you land them um, slightly off to one side, they can swap ends. And at 90 knots, or, or touchdown, about 80 knots really, 80 knots, if you, if you get that wrong and it swaps ends, you're going to hurt the aeroplane. So how long would uh, an average mission uh, take? Like, how long would you fly for? beauty of the BBMF is, that, again, there's, there's nothing routine about it. Um, <clears throat> once you're in the throes of summer, um, there's actually very little displaying that you do in the Dakota. It tends to be fly paths, which is um, three fly paths of an event, uh, three passes overhead, if you like. You can be airborne for as little as half an hour for a couple of local fly paths, or you can be airborne for three hours up and down the country, uh, joining up a dozen fly paths. It's brilliant. So how much planning does it take for like to join up with a lot of aircraft? Uh, we, if you're doing an air show, you'll have a slot. So the navigator is, is one of the hardest working on these airplanes, mm -hmm. without a doubt. They'll be in the week before, the day before, planning, contacting all the event organisers. <clears throat> if you're doing a fly pass at an air show or a display, uh, or even if you're doing a fly past at a, a train museum or a school or something like that, you'll need to coordinate and you'll be given a slot at the time when you're going to be there, plus or minus a few minutes. There'll also be contact on the day 
it may even be a radio frequency. So it's all quite well planned, so on the day of the event you know where you've got to be and when, and you should be able to deconflict with everyone else. So does weather affect it quite a lot? Hugely. Uh, these are priceless aviation artefacts. So you would um, have weather limits that were probably not the same as they had during the day, but you're trying to remove the risk of, of pranging these airplanes in, in strong winds or high crosswinds or low cloud. So yeah, we have set limits and we stick to them. So where's the Dakota base? RF Coningsby with all, all, the, all the rest of the, the fleet. So can you, do you have any memorable air shows or fly class in the Dakota? Yes, I remember doing a fly park, took the aircraft all the way to Hollyhead. Uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it was a lovely day out, it was blue skies, calm winds. We flew at low level all the way to Hollyhead for the Lifeboat Museum. And it was beautiful blue waters. We flew overhead RF Valley to get to where we were going. And at Hollyhead Lifeboat Museum we did three passes and it was full of people. And we brought the aircraft home through, uh, through Snowdonia. And about a week later we got a very nice thank you letter. That's uh, a nice thing to get. So it must be like a privilege when you get to do stuff huge like privilege, that. Huge privilege. Privilege to fly the airplanes. It's a privilege to uh, meet the veterans. And it's a huge privilege to, uh, to entertain all the people that come to the air shows. You also fly the Lancaster as well. Can you tell us about this? You, wonderful airplane. Uh, and and it, its majesty is not lost on you when you strap in. Uh, there's a little plaque on the back door that uh, says remembering the many so we get that little tap as we get in um, once you've learnt the Dakota halfway through your first season all being well you'll learn to fly the Lancaster as a co-pilot um, and it's the same routine really you are doing fly past or air shows up and down the country but the added bonus of the, the Lancaster is you display with the Hurricane Spitfire on mm. your wing that's not bad is it's it? not bad at all <laughs> so was the training different for the Lancaster? The beauty about being the co-pilot in the Lancaster is you don't actually land the beast. Uh, you are kind of the throttles man, you're there to be another uh, pair of eyes and ears. Uh, you might work the occasional radio. The navigator is the, is the hardest working chap in the airplane, without a doubt. Uh, and then the captain when you come to land the beast, because then it, once again it's a tail dragger and it's, it'll bite you on the ground. Uh, as a co-pilot, it's a lovely place to be, because you, uh, you haven't got to worry about landing it. <laughs> Uh, that little devil's always on your shoulder, you know, whispering in your ear, you've got to land it, you've got to land it. Um, but you do get to do the fly pass, so you actually get to fly the airplane on the fly pass. So it's, it really is the best of both worlds. So how many are crewed in the Lancaster? Routinely four. There's the, the captain, me, the co-pilot, navigator, uh, who's, who's one of the hardest working in the airplane, and the flight engineer. Is it the same crew every time? No, mix and match all the time, as with the Dakota. Um, because we're all volunteers for want of a better word, it's not our primary job to be on the, the BBMF. We still do our main job elsewhere. Um, people come on an availability basis. So can you tell us about your first time in the Lancaster? That must have been pretty special. It was. Um, before you learn to fly it, you um, have a familiar flight, so that the, 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 uh, the wow factor is taken away for when you come to learn to fly it. Um, and I did that sat in the upper turret. Oh, wow. and uh, we did a fly pass down at High Wickham I think it was for a dining in night and again it was a beautiful blue day calm winds and it was just us airborne and it was lovely um, I think it was about a three hour flight there and back um, and I remember thinking in the upper turret my god these boys were very exposed mm -hmm. so yeah I remember that flight very well so what air shows have you flown in the Lancaster? Uh, I've done Duxford um, I've done uh, Southport um, 
Bournemouth, and I think that's about it. I, a lot of the other things I did in the Lancaster were fly pasts. So what's it like to fly? Like, could you tell us? Very much like a century. Really? It's quite solid. It's quite sturdy. It doesn't want to roll particularly well. It's, it's a bomber, so it needed to be quite um, stable and fly on a straight line while the bomber did his bits and pieces. Yeah, it's a heavy old bird, actually. So what's the cockpit like? Is it all analogue? Very much so. Very much <laughs> no so. modern systems like at all? see in the movies. No, not at all. It's lovely. It's typically British. Yeah. So what was the first time, do you remember, the first time you met up with a Spitfire in a hurricane? Yeah, I think it would have been towards the end of my first season. Um, we did some, I think it was Bournemouth Air Show. Um, we flew into Biggin Hill, and after that, uh, the Spitfire Hurricane joined us, and we went down to do Bournemouth. It was lovely. That must have been special. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> so, can you tell us about the seasons? How many seasons do you get to fly? When you join, it's kind of an unwritten contract, but they'd like a minimum of about five years out of you, five seasons, which I think is fair enough, because you're, you're, you're amassing a lot of corporate knowledge of how the air show uh, world works. You get to know all the airfields that you work out of, so you know, the people that organise them, the flying display directors, a lot of things to pick up. Five years is about right, because you can also you can learn it and then you can pass it on to the next generation of guys that come to fly the aeroplanes. Um, but you can do a lot longer. Some of the guys have been there eight, ten years. So you're hoping to stay on for a few more seasons? I would hope so. I would hope so. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> At this stage of, of, the, of the space season, we've no idea what shows we're going to yet. We know some of the big ones, you know, like, um, like I was talking earlier, Duxford and Southport and, and, and what have you. We know that they've been requested. In terms of do I know whether I'm going to be displaying there, not yet. It's an evolving, it's an evolving beast. Over winter, all the requests will come in from, from flypaths and major airshow organisers for these airplanes to turn up. Um, there's a very busy chap called Parky, who's the ops officer, uh, he'll be putting together a spreadsheet with all these requests um, and he'll be clumping them together on certain days. Uh, geographically, he'll be putting them together in little pockets. Uh, obviously, you won't want aircraft crisscrossing up and down the country. You, you, you'll send them all to one sort of area to get the job done on their own. Um, so over winter, he'll come up with that plan and then near the time, you'll fine-tune which aircraft and which crews are going to go and fly those to space. So how often do you get to fly? Again, there's no average. No average? You know, um, I would say every couple of weeks at the minimum uh, throughout the display season. It and can be quite full on. So you don't get to pick which aircraft they pick you? You, The, the bomber leader, uh, he does a, a really good job. He's a very busy man. He's training us all, he's keeping us all current, and he's um, allocating you to an aircraft throughout the season. What he tries to do is he tries to balance out the flying. So if the first part of the season, one particular guy's got more hours than another guy, the other half will try and load them up. Okay. But don't forget, we're also flying frontline airplanes, so it may be that our frontline squadron wants a bit more of our time uh, than we can give to BBMF. So you may lose out in that respect. But you know, it's it's um, it's a balancing act. So frontline always comes first. Yes, but in my mind, yeah, you can't help it. You try and prioritise the BBMF. It's such fun flying. But yeah, yeah really, the, the frontline flying has to come first. Do you have any memorable moments from flying the Lancaster? Yeah. Um, I think when my first season, when the Canadian Lancaster came across, we took the Lancaster to Jersey, and uh, Vera, as the aircraft was called, joined us with the Spitfire and Hurricane. And uh, I remember very well tracking out over the sea to, to Jersey and then coming back again. It was good. It was a sight you uh, were not going to get bored of looking at another Lancaster on your wingtip. This could be a difficult one, but do you have a favourite of the two? Do you know what? I do. And... Um, 
people will be shouting at the, the screen now saying Lancaster, Lancaster, it's not, it's the Dakota. <laughs> really? I know, I know, I should say Lancaster, <laughs> it's Dakota. I can't explain why. Although I had a conversation with um, one of the fighter pilots uh, a couple of seasons back about what his favourite was. And the fighter pilot boys, they fly the Hurricane first. And he's, of course, everyone would expect him to say, Spitfire's my favourite, Spitfire's my favourite. But I think the first Warbird you fly, I think, well, for me, that's, that's the reason it's my favourite, because it's the first Warbird I flew was the Dakota. Uh, and it'll always be the case, I think. Now, I'm not a captain on Lancaster yet. Maybe when I move into the left-hand seat, I'll think differently. <laughs> uh, but at the moment, it's the DAC, very special. So, Neil, do you have any hobbies? Um, I am pretty busy. I would say flying is my hobby. I don't have much time for anything else because in the summer season I'm, I'm current on three different aeroplanes so there's not a lot of time for any hobbies. Do you have a favourite tipple? I could get whiskey these days as I'm getting greyer. <laughs> favourite aircraft? Of the ones I've flown or in, in, in the world? In the world. Do you know, I think I'm going to go back to the Dakota on that one. Yeah. Dakota? One you could wish you could have flown? Well, I wish I could have flown. Yeah. Yeah, special. Special? Yeah. Wow, never heard that one well, before. Well, there you go. <laughs> you have a uh, favourite place to display it? I did Southport this year, which is quite close to home, and it was nice to be able to um, let all my friends and family know that I was coming for them to watch. And Southport's a nice venue, so yeah, Southport's good. What's the best part for flying for the BBMF? The fact that you are treading in the footsteps of some really, really amazing people, and you get to experience what they did. Can we find you online anywhere? I've not Googled myself, but I've no doubt you'll be able to find me on the BBMF website. Do you have a Twitter account? I do. Do you want to mention? Do you, do you know what it is? It's Neil Farrell 3, I think it is. You'll, you'll find me. <laughs> and finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Never. It's my life. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews and much more. And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.